Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Now, if you turn over the page, we're going to continue at verse 35, where we'll pick up in the middle of Stephen's response. Verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is God's word. Jimmy, thank you. Thank you for reading that and uh, capturing somewhat of the intensity, no doubt, of uh, that speech. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, we, we can see this is an important speech. It's the longest speech in the book of Acts. But it's got so many details. Help us to understand rightly why it's here. And more than that, Father, help us to know how we respond. How we respond with lives that honor you, love you, value you. Father, would you be at work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a number who perhaps could lay claim to being the father of uh, modern missions. Uh, Quite often, William Carey is referred to uh, by that title. Uh, Probably the most prolific church planter, Bible translator the world's ever seen. Took the gospel to India and uh, saw enormous fruit eventually after a a decade of seeing nothing. And memorably said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And often people called him the father of modern missions. Well, it depends a little bit where you come from. Uh, I think probably if you're um, uh, from America, Jim Elliott is sort of held up as the sort of key guy who really kick-started the modern missionary movement, uh, who went to his death in 1956. Um, really, so it appeared fruitlessly, having not achieved a great deal, but the story of his desire to share the gospel with uh, tribes of Latin America 
drove many, many, many hundreds, thousands into the mission field. Jim Elliot memorably said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But if you turn to the Bible, I think you'd probably want to say that Stephen, Stephen is the father of the modern missionary movement or missionaries because his speech here in uh, Acts chapter 7 establishes the key truths that drives the early church out. Rather than resting in Jerusalem with what they've found out, this wonderful news about Jesus who has died to save them from hell for heaven forever, they're driven out by the the truths that Stephen uh, establishes to take the gospel to the world. It's a key speech. It's a key moment in, in the history of the church. Now, we're returning to the book of Acts uh, properly now. If you, if you were here before Christmas, we looked at the first few chapters, Acts chapter 1 to 6, and we said really the point of Acts is that Jesus Christ is growing his kingdom. It's unstoppable. You can trust him for that. And chapter 1 verse 8 gives the agenda for the church and therefore for the book where uh, Jesus said to his uh, um, apostles, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's begun. But in the little table I've scribbled down at the bottom of your, your sheets, uh, you can see that's where we got to before Christmas, 1, 1 to 6, 7. They're in Jerusalem. But now, chapter 6, verse 8, there's a turning point because they go to Judea and Samaria, and then from 932 onwards to the non-Jewish world and to the ends of the earth. So this chapter 6, verse 8, this little section is a key turning point of history. Really, ever since 2,000 years earlier, God had appeared to Abraham, and we'll come to that in a moment, but God had appeared to Abraham and given him wonderful promises to bless the world. That had kind of worked in a, um, if you like such things, a, a centripetal fashion. That is a hoovering in fashion. So Jerusalem and Israel was the center of the world, and, and the way you were blessed was by coming in and joining God's people. Really, all for 2,000 odd years, God's dealings have been with Abraham and his descendants, and, and the, 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 the ocean really had flowed into Israel and Jerusalem. But from this point onwards, the tide turns and it goes out to the ends of the earth. It's always been God's plan to bless the whole planet. But in the Old Testament, largely that's by coming in and joining. And now it's, the church goes out. Tide turns, so blessing goes to the world. So here we are in chapter 6, verse 8. If you were here in the autumn, you'd have noticed, or you may remember, the opposition to the church had been growing. So in chapter 4, the apostles had been uh, ticked off uh, and berated. Chapter 5, they'd been beaten. Here, uh, well, here you get someone's death. Now, Stephen, he's doing miracles, but it's his teaching that really upsets people. Uh, and the agenda for the speech is set, well, you can see it in chapter 6, verse 13. Here's the accusation against Stephen. Chapter 6, verse 13. There's uh, people, these are ordinary people now, not just the religious elites, ordinary people of the synagogue. They've, they've tried engaging with him theologically, that hasn't worked. They've tried scheming behind his back, that hasn't worked. They've gone for violence now, they've arrested him. And here's the accusation, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. 
We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. But verse 13, that's what they're getting upset about. This fellow Stephen speaks against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. And we can't stand that. He speaks against the temple and the law. Chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, is this true? And we get this very long speech where Stephen says, no. I'm not speaking against the temple and the law. But what you need to understand is that they were always pointing towards Jesus Christ. They were wonderful and magnificent, but their fulfillment is in him. And let me just show you that the Old Testament always prepared us for this truth so that God's blessing would go to the whole world. So let me try and summarize this speech because it is a long one in uh, three statements or three truths about God that the church needed to know in order that the gospel would go out to the whole world. I've slightly tweaked them from the sheets. They'll probably come up behind me. Um, So there they are. God is not constrained to a temple. God cannot be domesticated by you. And God allows Stephen to die like Jesus. Okay? These are three truths they had to get clear in their heads in the early church for the gospel to go to the world. And so they're three truths for you and for me we need to be clear on so that the saving message of Jesus Christ, of his love for this world, goes out and is a blessing across this planet. Two negatives in one sense and then one a bit more positive, you might call it in that way. First thing, God is not constrained to a temple. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the, the temple that God gives, it's a, it's a divine parable, if you will. As the New Testament would elsewhere say, it's a, it's a shadow of the good things to come. It's a picture of God coming and dwelling with his people, represented by this enormous temple, all made of gold, in the center of which there's a throne. It's an empty throne because you can't represent him. But God dwells amongst his people to bless them. But it was only a picture of what it would be like when Jesus Christ came to bless his people. And so Stephen focuses on some of the Old Testament big hitters uh, in order to make his point. And really when he goes to uh, Abraham and uh, Joseph and and Moses, he's saying, can we just observe, when God spoke to them, it wasn't in the temple, it wasn't in Jerusalem, because God is Lord over the whole planet. Let me skim over some of the history to show you. So chapter 7, verse 2. Let's go to big hitter number 1, Abraham. Are these charges true? The high priest asked Stephen. 7, verse 2. To this he replied, brothers and, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Who appeared to Abraham? The God of glory Glory associated with the temple. Where did he appear to Abraham? Well, not in Israel, in Mesopotamia. Because God is not tied to one place. He's not constrained to a temple. What about Joseph, chapter 7, verse 9? Let's skip on. Uh, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him 
and rescued him from all his troubles. Where was God with Joseph? Was it in Jerusalem? Was it in Israel? It was not. It was in Egypt that God was with him. Egypt, the sort of epitome of hostility to God's people. That's where God was with him. What about Moses, verse 30? Moses, after 40 years had passed, well, we're picking up verse 29. Uh, Moses uh, fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Is that in Israel? It is not. And verse 33, the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Where is holy ground? It's not in the temple. It's not in Israel. It's where God is. Is holy ground. And so Stephen really reaches his conclusion on this point. God is not constrained to a temple in verses 44 to 50. He's just sort of building to a crescendo. Let me read it from verse Perhaps verse 47. It was Solomon who built a house or a temple for him, the Lord. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see, there's a contrast of hands. Verse 48, God doesn't live in a place made by human hands. Human hands can't make a home for the one whose hands made all of creation, heaven and earth. That's silly. This week I had a couple of days off and I went with my son to the Lego shop, which is, um, which is fun, um, in... Um, um, Leicester Square, just off Leicester Square. Uh, it's fun uh, if you like Lego, which m- most men kind of do in some sort of way. And as you look at the various models, and there's you know there's the, the last Millennium Falcon for six hundred and fifty pounds uh, in the shop, which was tempting in a sort of hypothetical way. Uh, and then, uh, but then you looked, looked around at various around them. I was impressed with the Taj Mahal. That's very fairly new. Six thousand pieces you can make. The Taj Mahal, it's about yay big and about yay sort of square, and it'll cost you 300 pounds, and, um, you know, for a lot of plastic, um, good value, I would have thought. The, um, but to imagine in a moment of generosity or, or insanity, I bought it for my son and said, here is a demonstration of my generosity, of my wealth, <laughs> of my... Uh, desire to bless you, my desire to lavish good things upon you. Here it is. And um, do you know what? Whenever you, you're tempted to say, Dad, you're mean, you never get me anything I want, I will go, behold, observe 6,000 pieces of plastic um, as a Taj Mahal. And imagine this scenario where this, on he goes, and so we buy this thing, or I buy this thing for him, and he makes it, and it, you know, all the, it goes through all the instructions and makes the thing, and, and then says, Dad, I've made it, and now you can live in it. No, no, I can't. Itty bitty men can live in it. Um, and happily, there aren't sort of itty bitty sort of Lego men that do, but. but Itty bitty men could live in it. I can't live in it. 
It's not meant to be a house for me. It's meant to be a symbol of my wealth, generosity, desire to give you good things. And look, that is far from perfect. But when God gives the temple to Israel, it is a symbol of God dwelling amongst his people, his uniqueness, his wealth, how privileged they were, that he would choose to dwell uh, representatively, uh, you might say covenantly, either he's promised to live amongst them, but he was never constrained or contained by a temple. You can't limit him to one place. All well and good for you and for me. Well, let me say it negatively, then positively. Negatively, and this is fairly obvious, I would hope, you can't tie God to a building, any building. It is always a little eccentric when you hear, particularly religious people, talking about the holiness of a building. You don't go to B&Q and buy holy bricks. Well, you do, don't you? The sort of air bricks. But I don't mean that. But you, you know what I mean? The sort of sanctified bricks. There aren't... There's no special place. And God is not in this building more intensely than he is in your home. Be a negative way of putting it. But I guess more positively, how encouraging is Stephen's speech for the early church? All these thousands of Christians who become Christians in the last few weeks, and they've been Jews all their life, and their lives have been focused upon the temple in Jerusalem. And now Stephen is making it very clear, when you go... God is with you. There is nothing special about Jerusalem in this temple. When you go, he is with you. Just as he's with Abraham in Mesopotamia and Joseph in Egypt and Moses in Sinai, God is with you. No matter how unimpressive it may look. So if you were here last week, you'd have heard one of our mission partners, David, talking about the country where he's working in in North Africa and the oldest church known there is 10 years old and the largest church there is perhaps 20 people. And it's all very unimpressive. And God is with them. He's not constrained to one place. He's not contained in Israel. He's not constrained to the the West and the churches that have been built here for centuries. He's with them, even though they're small, even though it's young. How important to know that. God is not contained, constrained to any one location. Even, dare I say it, for those who will leave in the summer and go off and plant a graft in Haringey, and you think, oh, it'll all be very different and we'll lose what is familiar. And yes, that's of course true, but God will be with you. Because there's nothing special about this place, of course. It may have carpet and you may not when you go there. But God does not reside in carpet. He will be with you. He's never constrained to one place. So here's a simple message that hopefully all Christians would know, but need to be reminded of, wherever you go, God goes with you. He's not constrained to one place. And if the gospel is to go out across this world, you need to know that. That's the first sort of 
key message that uh, Stephen wants to get across. Uh, the second is related and very similar. God is not constrained to a temple. Uh, but secondly, God cannot be domesticated by you. He can't be domesticated by you. Again, shrunk down. Let's pick it up uh, perhaps in particular in... Um, well, we'll come to that in a moment. But Stephen highlights the irony. He's accused of speaking against the law, but God's people in the Old Testament, well, they never kept it. You're saying, I'm, I'm degrading the law? Is this the same law that you never keep? There's a certain irony to that. So look at this, look at this in two different ways. First of all, he says, well, look at how you treated the prophets of God. And again, there's this list of the big hitters from the Old Testament. Verse 9, Joseph well, you've got to love Joseph. He was such a hero. But verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. His brothers didn't want him, but he went on to be the savior of the world. He was the one who accumulated all the grain in Egypt. And so if you wanted to survive famine, you had to go to Joseph. He was the savior of the known world even though he initially rejected. What about Moses? How was he treated? Well, verse 23. Let's look at him. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, went to his defense, avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Verse 26, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Or you might summarize the, how they treated him in uh, verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words it's just like Joseph, the same for Moses. God sent you a, a savior and you rejected him. That's how you treated them. The ones who had God's word, the ones who were your saviors, well, you didn't treat them very well, did you? Again, verse 38, our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected him and turned their hearts back to Egypt. So look at how you ignore the prophets of God who God sent to save you. That's terrible. And look at how you ignore the law acutely in verses 39 to 40. Um, verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and turned their uh, hearts back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their hands had made. But God turned away from them, gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, so, uh, perhaps a famous incident or memorable account from the book of Exodus. Moses is receiving the law, this very law that they're meant to love. And uh, while Moses is receiving the law, they say, what's happened to Moses? We're a bit bored of Moses. Can we have something else to worship, please? Aaron, can you make us little, little gods, little godlets? Little gods that we can put in our pockets and, and take with us and we sort of domesticate them and, and, and conform them to our image. The sun, the moon, the stars, that sort of thing. You know, we, we, that's okay. They wanted to domesticate God and reduce him down. 
But domesticating God, domesticating the Lord is a killer for evangelism and the message going across the globe. God can't be domesticated. If you shrink him down like that, well, you'll never take him and his message across the globe. Many years ago, um, the summer I graduated from university, uh, what was that, five years ago, something like that, and um, I, uh, I was due, I'd planned and arranged and had my tickets, etc., to go to Pakistan for four months, and I was due to go and, and, and work alongside some uh, missionaries who were in Pakistan uh, in sort of fairly remote areas, just to see and observe mainly what they were doing, and is this something I could do long term, uh, and uh, go to a place like Pakistan and, and, and share the message of Jesus uh, with the people there. I thought that might be a good thing to do. I was zealous, which was good. I was young. That's always dangerous. Um, and uh, so I hadn't been very wise. I'd been a Christian about 18 months, but hadn't been home for more than a day or two in that whole time to see my parents. And they were a bit bewildered by my newfound faith. And so I remember one phone call uh, when um, uh, my parents rang up and said, what are you doing? Why are you going to Pakistan? They have their gods. They don't want yours. Why can't you be a Christian in a sort of unobtrusive way? Be a Christian who doesn't annoy other people. And that is, with the progress of time, an enormously tempting offer. Why not be a Christian in an unobtrusive way? Other people have their gods. They don't want yours. But at that point, you've shrunk God right down to a local tribal deity, the God of Sundays in middle-class churches in England, rather than the Lord of the earth. Tempting. But that is domesticating the Lord. It's following an idol. And so Stephen reaches his conclusion in verses 51 to uh, the end of of that block, 53. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet our ancestors did not persecute? Like Joseph and Moses And they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, Jesus. That's how you treat God and his saviors. Oh, and verse 53, you've received the law that was given through angels, but you've not obeyed it. If the gospel is going to go out to the world, don't constrain God to one place. Don't domesticate him down just to a local deity. You can't do that. God is not constrained to a temple. He cannot be domesticated by you. Lastly, briefly, God allows Stephen to die like Jesus. Luke chooses to describe Stephen's death in terms remarkably similar to that of Jesus Christ. 
So verse 57, Stephen is, uh, 58 rather, dragged out of the city to be killed, just like Jesus is killed outside the city gates. Verse 59, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, just as Jesus had prayed on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 60, Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them who are killing me, just like Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's very deliberate that Stephen is choosing to describe, excuse me, Luke is describing Stephen's death in manners almost identical to that of Jesus. Why? Why is that important? Because Stephen is the first martyr. He dies a death like Jesus. And and Luke's point is, look, the gospel is about to go to the whole world. And as it does so, don't be surprised if this happens to its messengers. That they're treated the same way as their master. So Stephen, if you remember, we met him back in Acts chapter 6. The apostles delegated administration to him along with others. But even though he's meant to be an administrator, he always shares the gospel wherever he goes because that's what believers do. And so we read here in chapter 8 verse 1, when persecution comes, the apostles, they stay put in Jerusalem, but it's the believers, the, the ordinary Christians, the, the, the carpenters and, the, and the, the lawyers and the medics and the, and the school teachers, they're the ones who go, chapter 8, verse 1, and, and verse 4, as they go, those who've been scattered, they preach the word wherever they went. See, the apostles were unique witnesses to Jesus, but anyone can take the apostolic message with them as they go. And as the gospel goes, as the tide comes in and turns, the first person to lead this charge dies, a death just like Jesus. And Luke is saying, don't be surprised. Yes, Stephen is unique. It's the longest speech in the book. He's the first martyr as God's blessings flow. Rather than into Israel and Jerusalem, they flow out to the world. But he's typical as well. Because as the gospel goes, it'll be resisted. So chapter 8, verse 1, don't be surprised when persecution comes. Uh, Happily, in the autumn, I persuaded many of you to, uh, to buy the axe and the tree um, so written by Steve Griffiths, one of our mission partners, about his parents, uh, uh, Peter and Brenda, uh, and I'm thrilled, I hope many of you have bought it and read it. Um, it's a terrific read, as you know, uh, many will know. It's the story then of uh, Peter and, and Brenda Griffiths, how they established a school and a hospital in uh, rural Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, in the 1960s, 70s. Hundreds of, became Christians, lots of churches planted from that as a base. But the central event in 1978 is when ZANU PF forces come and slaughter all of the white missionaries. And everyone, all of the students are just devastated. And what happens now? And it looked like a devastating blow. But a year or two later, one of the students who was scattered across the country wrote, the devil saw the fire of the gospel burning brightly at Emmanuel School and Hospital. So he ran up and gave the fire a big kick 
and he thought he'd put it out. But all he did was spread sparks across the country, starting new fires, new churches, all over the place. And that is precisely what happened in Acts chapter 8 as the result of this persecution. The early church is kicked out and plants churches everywhere. So God allows Stephen to die like Jesus and there'll be many like Stephen today. Not so many in the West, but don't be surprised when some persecution comes. I mean, it looks like a devastating blow. Don't be surprised if a few years later, God has used it to plant fires. Because Jesus is growing his kingdom and it's unstoppable. So there is Stephen. Stephen, then the father of modern missions, I put it to you. Because here he gives the church truths that they needed the early church. God is not constrained to a temple. God cannot be domesticated by you and God allows Stephen to die like Jesus. Nothing surprising really here. We could have known it anyway, I guess, because you see it in the life of Christ. God is not constrained to heaven. His love compels him to come to this earth. Jesus couldn't be domesticated either by his followers who wanted a certain type of Messiah or his enemies who hated him. He broke the mold as he became a saviour who died for humans like you and me who need a saviour to take our place. And this message of a saviour who forgives through his death, it is the message for the whole world. So here are truths you and I need to know. Don't constrain the Lord to one place. Don't domesticate him. Don't make him too small. Don't be surprised when he allows some to die like Jesus did. These are the things that will happen as the gospel spreads. And the message of God's love for people in Jesus Christ reaches every corner of this world. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, here are a few very simple and yet utterly ground-shattering truths. The Lord Jesus is not the king of one place. Christianity is not a regional, a cultural religion. He is Lord of all. And we can't domesticate him. We mustn't make him small. We mustn't manufacture a Jesus in our image but must recognize for who he is and therefore that he is the one that every nation needs. So Father, would we be as bold as one as such as Stephen who knows these truths deeply and therefore is willing to follow his master through hardship, through opposition in order that the message of the God's love for this world in Jesus Christ reaches into each and every corner, we pray in his name. Amen.